COVID-19 actions by the governments of Trudeau, Ford and Tory a denial of my rights and a seizure of illegal power? How have the lockdowns intended to save lives of COVID victims destroyed the lives of several others? Why did doctors in the province of Manitoba try to mobilize their government to bring in a lockdown to save their community? Why does one such doctor, unlike many around the world, quarrel with the differing viewpoints on the disease, masks, the RT-PCR test, and numerous other differences also used to protect against lockdowns? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will hear two opposite points of view on the COVID-19 in an attempt to reach a fuller spectrum on the crisis. In the first half, we will get a speech from the distinguished constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati, speaking to the liberty violations at a Toronto Freedom rally recently. Then in our second half, we'll hear from the distinguished doctor and professor Anand Kumar in Winnipeg about 11 doctors appealing for stricter measures and about the other side of the COVID-19 debate. On this week's program... Coronavirus, a second look, addendum. Powerful voices have their say on pandemic salvation. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 6, 2020. This program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis, and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Virtually all governments have assured their people, frankly, we are more subjects than people for them, subjects that are manipulated with lies and masks and social distancing, separated from their loved ones through senseless quarantines, these potentially resisting subjects, we were assured that there will be no second lockdown, that the countries, the world, could not afford a second lockdown. However, gradually, but with giant steps, these dictatorial governments, almost all of whom have quietly and without consultation of the people, adopted health emergency laws, a close equivalent to martial law, have closed all the windows and doors so that, bang, another lockdown is on the plate, and again, nowhere to escape. Germany, France, Spain, Belgium, Austria, Portugal, Greece, the UK, and so far partly Switzerland, have just declared within the last 48 hours a lockdown, or a quasi-lockdown, with curfews and house arrests, isolation at home, shop closings, work-from-home rules, and more. That comes from the article, COVID and its man-made gigantic collateral damage, The Great Reset, A Call for Civil Disobedience, by Peter Koenig, posted November 3rd. 
a newcomer driving through our forested hills reacts to a barn with a trump sign plastered across its side as if there's a sniper behind the weather vane on the roof. Self-proclaimed progressives assume any truck owner is not college-educated, probably owns a gun, and really doesn't understand politics. They call them Trumpers and whisper really ugly epithets about them. These newcomers are rattled not because of any significant physical threat. They feel, in many cases for the first time, that they are a minority. That comes from the article, It's Only a Lawn Sign. Well, perhaps far more. How Being a Minority Feels, by Barbara Nimri Aziz, posted November 3rd. Despite its sky-high stock price, $67 per share as of October 30th, 2020, Moderna has yet to earn a single penny from the sale of any of its handful of experimental vaccines. It has, not surprisingly, developed its protocol for testing its two-dose experimental COVID-19 vaccine that is essentially the same as the announced protocols of Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccines in that half of the approximately 30,000 volunteers that they have amassed will be injected with two doses of its active vaccine, each of which contains uncertain-to-be-safe ingredients. The other half will be injected with a placebo. Interestingly, in the past, some vaccine testing companies have added a tissue-toxic ingredient that will cause injection site symptoms, presumably, so that the placebo group won't know if they got the vaccine or not. There are reportedly any number of startup and established pharmaceutical corporations worldwide that are also trying to be the next blockbuster vaccine seller on the planet, but none of them, much less the four experimental vaccine companies listed below, have been following time-honored methods of testing its experimental drugs and vaccines on lab animals, a serious breach of protocol that has become the new normal in order to comply with President Trump's Operation Warp Speed agenda, which Trump has been pushing in order to produce a vaccine, any vaccine, before his re-election bid is decided. That comes from the article, The Flawed COVID-19 Vaccine Testing Programs, Testing by Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and AstraZeneca, by Dr. Gary G. Coles, posted November 2nd. In Philadelphia, Trump's Department of Justice, or DOJ, prosecutors borrowed a page from the Obama administration's DOJ playbook. If folks recall... After the Baltimore uprisings in 2015, Obama's DOJ slapped federal charges on the resistors Obama had referred to as thugs and criminals. Just last week, the Trump DOJ swept into Philly and nationalized a local law enforcement by addressing and slapping federal felony charges against four African activists. So while the Black Alliance for Peace takes no official position on the election or on its outcome, we have been consistent as an alliance. We are clear. The fight for our people will continue. That comes from the article, The Contours of Resistance Beyond the Election by Black Alliance for Peace, 
posted November 3rd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In Canada, at a time when COVID-19 seems to be top of the headlines for weeks on end, political leaders at all three levels of government are making decisions that radical measures must be undertaken to halt the spread of the virus and save as many lives as possible. These measures include tougher restrictions on business and social life. In Winnipeg, masks must be worn in all public places outside the home, and no more than five people should meet in any location, and the Premier is presently contemplating a curfew. Stays in hospital are reaching the breaking point. This has led doctors to write the Premier pleading for another full lockdown to keep the pandemic in check. Meanwhile, there have been actions by Canadians trying to resist these measures. A legal organization called the Constitutional Rights Centre, based in Toronto, has taken a bold step of challenging these initiatives, which they say is an illegal seizure of power and a violation of our human rights. The CDC's executive director is the lawyer named Rocco Galati. He's been a constitutional lawyer for over 30 years. He has taken on numerous cases against the government, and he gave a speech at the rally opposed to the COVID limitations. Here he is speaking to Toronto on October 17, 2020. Anyone who was awake at the time, and there were many of us, there were many of us who, in fairness, feared, but were too, felt too alone and didn't want to buck the system in their community to express themselves. But anybody who was awake saw this coming because it had been expressed, opened and planning for, it's been in the planning for decades. Yes! So I want to talk about human beings and humanity because at the end of the day, constitutional lawyers in defending constitutional rights are defending the human attributes that make us human. It's no more complicated than that. So I want to first say to Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Ford, Mr. Tory, respectfully, none of us want to sing in your fascist muzzled rat race choir that you're conducting. to a score of pornography of fear for globalist criminals. So I'd like to say to each of you respectfully, stop lying to your citizens you're supposed to serve. Stop lying about the bogus fraudulent quote testing. Tell us what the PCR tests and I, uh, 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 about the PCR test and what it actually tests, you know it does not test for any virus. Your case counts are criminal propaganda. Your, 
your discourse of numbers is criminally fraudulent. In the USA, they call that data fraud and actually have criminal provisions geared at state officials who engage in data fraud because it misleads the public. So stop lying about cases to scare us about deaths. E e even on your fraudulent characterization of 9,800 plus COVID deaths, this amounts barely to one quarter of 1% of the Canadian population. Don't talk to me about numbers in the abstract that don't mean a f***ing thing. This is... This is, an, uh, this is a death rate that is no different from the annual flu for the last 15 years. Yes. Where's the pandemic? There is And stop lying, calculated, uh, 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 globalized fear mongering. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. There are those who are afraid. And who are they, largely? The, the poor, the disabled, and the elderly. Because they're the, they're the victims of this vicious fraud. They're the ones who can't negotiate their life in the context of this insanity that you've unleashed on us. And shame on you for that. I have four or five questions for Mr. Trudeau. Why are you advertising for crowd control officers for 25-25? Why are you procuring massive, massive stock supplies of riot tear gas? Why are you procuring internment facilities? Why are you advertising for drone neighborhood surveillance monitoring officers for 2030? This is all public publicly available information. What's your agenda, Mr. Trudeau? Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Tory here in the city of Toronto, why do you miserably fail at providing affordable housing, but you're happy and gleeful to take $14 million to build an isolation center, another type of internment facility? Build some affordable housing, why don't you? Address Lock Mr. Ford, up. our Premier, as well. So, why will you not answer any of Randy Hillier's questions? Yeah. Especially about the internment camps planned for Ontario. Why do you refer to law abiding citizens exercising their constitutional rights? As Yahoos. Yahoo! And that if they do not like masks or mandatory measures, they can, quote, leave the country. Where do you get that audacity? This is our country! In my career, I've heard that line directed at me many times when I take unpopular cases. And it's always from the same source, not always from the same person, but always from the same well. 
and that well is the well of redneck white supremacists. Hey, who do you think you are? Your ancestors may have helped in stealing this land from the indigenous people of Canada, but you don't own the country. Any premier who says that should be ashamed of himself. That's true. to say, Mr. Ford, you may have a challenged time understanding what I'm about to say, but thought, conscience, belief, expression, association, assembly, life, liberty, security of the person, freedom from unlawful search and seizure and arbitrary detention, and equality are not rights you and your kind, tyrannical and incompetent politicians gave to me or anyone else. They, they are human attributes bestowed upon us by the Creator. Even if you believe the Creator goes no cosmically farther than your mother. Even there, it is she who gave, you, gave us all the gift of life and the human attributes that come with it. They all, we all possess as members of humanity. These rights that you have in the Constitution are codified human attributes. That's all they are. They're not rights bestowed upon you by the state. The state can only curtail, suppress, eliminate, or try to kill your human attributes. Don't get hoodwinked that the Charter was there to give you these rights. No, the Charter was there to protect you against these depraved, tyrannical mothers. So I'm here to tell you, of course, on behalf of my clients, who asked me to be here today, because otherwise I wouldn't waste my breath on you, because I know you don't listen, and if you do, you rarely understand, Premier Ford, and you don't care, I know that, but I'm here to tell you on behalf of my clients, as the, as the constitutional lawyer representing them, who have filed in court against you, to, Mr. Trudeau, Tory, along with your fraudulent and incompetent medical health officers who vacillate with their advice, which you refuse to disclose, by the way, and who vacillate with their advice from week to week like a palm tree swaying in a Pacific hurricane. I mean, if we believe everything they say, they should be fired for incompetence tomorrow. And what I want to say is that you cannot have, under any circumstances, my constitutional rights. They belong to me. And they belong to everybody here and everybody not here. They're not yours to possess. So, well, I have to stop short because then I can, uh, you know, governed by the law society. So, they were entrenched to protect me against tyrannical politicians like you. So I say on behalf of myself, and if I have the permission of the good people here, I say that we are all exempt.
is the first time I've come out, so I hope you don't mind if I rob a bit more time. That was a lot of time. Are you okay? So I'd like to say to Mr. Ford, you've tried to isolate me, distance me from my fellow humans, silence me with your slave trade masks, close down and lock down points of human contact, refrain me from kissing and hugging my children, allow, uh, and allow the abuse of children who are strapped in school all day, including the school, in the schoolyard, to wearing these stupid masks. That, 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 that have been documented to cause health risks. Now Teresa Tam tells me I have to wear a mask when I have sex. And, and even further than that, she personally recommended masturbation for all of us till 2022. Well, dear Dr. Tam, Choose what do you do in your personal life until 2022. It's your right. But do not tell me how to breathe, who to talk to, who to hug, who to kiss, or who to make love with my consensual partner or how. I will, we will not be stripped of our humanity. So, Trudeau, Ford, and Tory have been on a tyrannical tear to dehumanize us of all our human attributes. For what? To serve the predatory globalist agenda of Bill Gates and his criminal cohorts? Nothing, quote, nothing gets back to normal until we get a microchip vaccine? My, my, my answer to that is, go pound sand on a wet beach. Preferably a beach near your cottage where you broke the rules along with Mr. Trudeau. So Belgian doctors have called for an investigation of the WHO for, quote, its fraudulent pandemic. Dutch nurses and doctors have sued over the fact that this is not a, quote, pandemic, but a flu. And their nurses are refusing to be vaccinated to continue working. There are now over 100,000 doctors, experts, worldwide calling this pandemic fraudulent and the measures unwarranted. The measures have killed to a factor of 12 to 14 to one more people than you depraved leaders and health officers claim COVID has killed. You're, you're suggesting to us that we're so stupid as to think the way to kill a fly on a glass table is to take a sledgehammer. Now the world Food Bank is saying 10% of the world population risks starvation. That's 700 million people. Okay? 10,000 additional children a month are already dying from disruption of food supplies. How do we justify that, Mr. Ford? Just because they're not your kids? And dozens of developing countries have ejected the WHO for for its conduct and failed attempts to bribe their heads of state and for using their children for medical experiments. Mr. Ford, 81% of all Canadians who have died from the COVID, according to you, have died in their rat hole 
long-term care facilities. And what have you and Mr. Tory and Mr. Trudeau done about this year after year? Because it happens year after year, COVID or no COVID. You've done frigging nothing. So now you go waste. So you, you appoint the Honorable Mr. Justice Morocco, Associate Chief Justice, for whom I have the world of respect for him. He's one of the most enlightened and, and greatest jurists we've had. But what's he going to tell you you don't know? You don't maintain proper long-term long care facilities that are there mostly for profit. And you, this government and all previous governments have turned their head the other way. So now you're trying to whitewash it with a judicial inquiry. And all of this, all of this, You know, you ignore the elderly, you ignore all the, the things that could have mitigated these deaths. But you got your eye on internment camps over, over people who reject and oppose your lying fraudulent agenda. Criticized and opposed by imminent experts all over the world. You got your eye on suppressing of inalienable constitutional rights going to life itself. Is that your solution? You know? For what? Again, and I'm almost finished guys and girls. Again, for what is he doing this? Well, it's clear. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Just read. To serve Bill Gates, the Gabby, the World Economic Forum, the IMF, World Bank, and all the other criminal billionaire corporate oligarchs? Why? Do we need to stand for this? No! Enough! It's enough! Yet you keep your liquor stores as an essential service. People are dying, but your liquor is an essential service owned by the government of Ontario. Right? While I can't get shoes for my kids unless I get them at Walmart or Costco, right? What do these measures and agenda have to do with public health? Who do you think you're kidding? And I, I'd like to say, Mr. Ford, if I was born yesterday, it was pretty early in the morning. We, we, my clients do not believe, trust, nor care to listen anymore to you, your lies, nor your propaganda machine, and the horrors you call mainstream and corporate media. Your policies and politics make no scientific, medical, or common sense. Your belligerent fascism will not deter us in defending our human attributes codified as constitutional rights. Your measures are destructive, irrational, unconstitutional. They serve other masters, not the citizens of this province or country. Just a couple of last announcements before I get off the stage. Me too. Uh, next on our litigation agenda, we are bringing in a wholesale challenge in British Columbia. In Ontario, we're preparing to file against school principals, superintendents, and school boards for their insane torture. School boards and superintendents are actually have the audacity to even breach the provincial laws that are on the books. Yeah. 
Nobody could have said it better than Bob Dylan in his song, Everything is Broken, when he said, they're breaking, they're bending broken rules. I and the other lawyers and staff at the Constitutional Rights Center, thank you very much for your support. We invite you to continue our support, uh, supporting us so we can continue our efforts against this insanity. Okay? Thank you very much. That was Toronto-based constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati speaking in Toronto's Freedom Rally on October 17th. To find out more on this subject, visit the website constitutionalrightscenter.ca. We now turn to a very different perspective on the need for more restrictions and other statements on COVID at odds with commonly held beliefs. Anand Kumar is our guest in the second half. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I'm speaking with the distinguished Dr. Anand Kumar. He's a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Medical Microbiology, and the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics. He's trained in internal medicine, critical care medicine, and infectious diseases, he also co-signed an open letter to the provincial government encouraging the Premier to impose another lockdown in order to bring relief to the diminishing reserves of our his hospital system fighting to contain the COVID virus. I asked Dr. Kumar to comment on what would happen if they used up all the ICU beds in the city and were forced to resort to triaging patients. Triage means basically that you don't have enough resources to uh, treat all the patients that need uh, your resources effectively. And so you have to make a decision as to basically who's going to get aggressive treatment and who's not. And uh, how that happens depends on, on whether you've kind of have a plan in advance or whether you do it on the fly. So for example, uh, typically, in these kinds of situations, we talk about uh, giving the people who have the best chance of life the uh, priority. That may be younger people, it may be people who don't have a lot of uh, what we call comorbidities, other illness, uh, people who are less severely ill as opposed to those who are on uh, death's doorstep. Uh, it can be along those kinds of parameters. But, uh, you know, other people say it should be first come, first serve. So, uh, you know, it, it really depends on um, how you approach it in advance. Okay. Well, um, so I guess for, uh, I'd like to address, like you to address uh, some of the uh, uh, ideas that some people have about this virus. Um, first of all, various researchers uh, around the world have done the research and the statistics, and they say that COVID virus is no worse than the flu. I mean, death rates for people under the age of 70 is, is much, much less than 1%. And for patients without comorbidities, uh, it's actually uh, more like 0.1%. And um, despite the large numbers of people infected, uh, it's no more tragic ultimately than a common flu. Um, and also when someone dies with COVID, uh, maybe it, it could be somebody with a heart condition who happens to have gotten COVID uh, it's really, uh, well, it, it's not, uh, it's not registered 
is registered as COVID. Okay, so so what is your take on that? Is this indeed worse than a flu? Uh, it is worse than the flu. Uh, before I get to that, let me just point out that that the same thing could be said about influenza. That is to say, uh, it rarely kills people that are are young and healthy. Uh, but to the extent uh, that you get uh, and and in flu as well, that it tends to kill people who have other comorbidities. Um, Coronavirus is not substantially different in that sense. It is relatively uncommon that it's going to kill a, a young, healthy person. But I will say that that the data uh, suggests that it's certainly more so than you get with regular seasonal influenza, and probably even uh, probably even uh, the pandemic influenza that we had in uh, 2009. Uh, where uh, this coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, uh, is uh, unique is that the number of deaths that you see as the person gets older uh, uh, inflects much more sharply than you would see with um, with influenza as a general uh, rule. The other thing, of course, is that unlike influenza in most circumstances, uh, certainly seasonal influenza, kind of influenza you get every year, everybody is, uh, is uh, susceptible to coronavirus. And so the total numbers that you see can be far, far higher. Now, the reason that's important is that in 2009, we stressed our ICUs. As my recall I, I, uh, is that we had at our peak, we had about 50 of our ICU beds in the city, maybe 45 filled with H1N1 patients. And we were fortunate because we could stop surgery and we could, we could eliminate a lot of other things and we could somewhat expand our bed capacity. But we never reached a point there. We came close, but we never reached the point where we exceeded bed capacity. The problem when you reach bed capacity is this. If you need life support and it's not available, that person is going to die. And so if you have, you know, 70 beds and you have, uh, uh, you know, 80 people who need them, that means 10 people are going to die, right? Just, just because they don't have the resources. Now, maybe more than that, because of those 70, some of those may not survive anyway. But you know that those 10 are going to die. Now, you go up, so your mortality maybe has gone up by, what, 15%, right? You've had a jump of 10 deaths in that time. What if you have 150 people, all right? Well, that means that everybody over 70 is going to die. So the, the, the death rate absolutely skyrockets straight up once you exceed ICU capacity. And that's what makes this so dangerous beyond just the fact that it's a, a fairly severe illness it's just that the potential for overloading healthcare resources leads to a situation where you can't help people who need it and those people will die mm. well that brings up the the issue of the rt pcr test I and mean, it's the standard test uh, for uh, uh diagnosing it i mean it isn't as straightforward as a pregnancy test i mean it's, it's complex and uh, it's prone to delivering false positives. You know, I mean, it really wasn't intended as a diagnostic so much as just for laboratory use. Uh, so it's difficult to tell when somebody goes in with a, with a cold, but uh, he comes out actually with uh, this COVID virus. So, I mean, can you reply to these concerns about testing for disease? And uh, you know, well, 
RT-PCR is actually used pretty commonly now for diagnosis of uh, various infectious diseases. It's used in the hospital uh, not infrequently. It is a, a cutting edge technology. It's not what we used, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but it's certainly used quite commonly now. Uh, it has a high degree of accuracy. Um, it's actually the antigen tests, uh, some of which are out there, that are mo more prone to error both in both directions. That is, uh, you know, you can get a false positive and false negative. Um, and those are the more rapid tests. PCR usually takes at least, you know, some degree of time. Now, is it overly sensitive? Yeah, it'll pick up a small, uh, uh, you know, viral load, basically. Uh, but that just means that we have a lot, you know, we have a certain number of asymptomatic infections. We, if we were only doing the rapid uh, antigen test, we might not know about a lot of the uh, asymptomatic uh, patients. Um, so that it's accurate. It, if you, if you're carrying coronavirus, you have been at least uh, mildly infected. Um, so I, I, it, it's an accurate test, but obviously you have to go with what's going on with somebody uh, clinically. You know, I mean, I'm not going to take somebody into the hospital or even the IC or certainly the ICU because they got a positive test. I'm going to take them because they're short of breath and they need oxygen for the ward. I'm going to take them if they need mechanical ventilation or blood pressure support to the ICU. The fact that they're COVID positive is, you know, it, 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 it's meaningful, but it's not, you know, it's not what drives them into the unit. Okay. Um on masking, um, the, 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 there's a, the sentiment out there that uh, it, it, it doesn't really do that much to protect against the virus. This was actually as common knowledge up until March. And then uh, after March, uh, you know, there was uh, um, uh, that, that idea changed. And uh, then they came to the conclusion that, yeah, we've, we've got to have people wearing masks. Uh, even though you know the mask, the virus goes through a mask like a mosquito can go through a chain fence. So, um, what is the science, if you could? I mean, sure. So there, the protection of masks. So there's a misunderstanding about you know why uh, it was said in um, in the early in the epidemic uh, that the public didn't go out and have to wear masks on a regular you know basis, and that has to do with a lot of people who were wearing masks were using special medical masks called N95s. Uh, which do give you very uh, high level protection uh, from things like viruses. The problem was there was a major shortage of N95 masks for healthcare workers who actually were at risk because healthcare workers, as you know, in the United States, uh, they had, uh, you know, a thousand healthcare workers die and some of them because they didn't have uh, sufficient uh, N95 masks. So the, the thinking was reserve the N95 masks for, for those people for healthcare workers, and uh, others could choose to use them or not use them. Um, regular masks, the cotton masks, first off, they don't protect the, uh, the wearer so much. So if I put on a mask, a regular mask, a cloth mask or a, a non-N95 mask, I'm not so much protecting myself as protecting my neighbor or my spouse or my family members, the other person, because most of the transmission of coronavirus is through droplets. So yes, there are small viruses, but the viruses are living in little uh, droplets of spit, basically. Okay, you drop those, uh, you stop those droplets of spit, you protect other people. So when I wear a mask, as long as it picks up most of that little spit that's coming out, it goes about six feet away from me if I don't 
cough or I, or I don't, uh, you know, uh, sing or, you know, whatever kind of, those things will push it further. But, but as long as I got a mask on 80% of those are going to be picked up here. And so I'm protecting the other person. Now, do I get some protection as well? I do get some protection. And the reason is that the, the, uh, the other person who might be putting out little droplets, most of that actually drops kind of in front of them. So if they're not right in, in your face, you, you, it's not needed, the mass that is, because the droplets just drop to the ground, basically, right? But you do get some protection because some of them may reach you. But, you know, it might be 20% protection. Plus, the ones that get past six feet are, are the smaller ones anyway. So they have, uh, because they, they float on the air more, right? So those you're more likely to uh, run into. And again, if they are even small droplets, your mask will protect you. So mask gives the other person 80% protection gives you 20% protection. The reason to wear masks is to protect your neighbor, to protect your friends, right? Now, the, you know, I mentioned this thing about singing and stuff. Uh, you know, when you have, uh, you know, ventilation, breathing, what, what, what everybody else calls breathing, I'm sure, sorry. So when, when people breathe uh, or have a regular cough, like I said, the droplets will go about six feet or so. But when you do something vigorous like exercise or you're singing, they can go a lot further because there's just more force behind it, right? So that's why you hear about about uh, major super spreader events in gyms and you know churches and anywhere choir. It's not the fact that it's the church; it's the fact that people are singing typically. So so those are things um, that you need to to bear in mind. But yes, masks are protective. Um, they will not necessarily protect you from. Uh, there's some evidence that there could be spread through what we call aerosols where these are, you know, the droplets can vary from, you know, pretty big, like, you know, like kind of thing from there to basically small enough to just be floating in the air and just stay floating in the air. There's some evidence that it may partially spread by floating in the air. Those kind of particles, you're probably not protecting uh, yourself that much with a, with a regular mask. It will protect you with an N95 though, but nonetheless, as much protection as you can get, you should take. Okay. And there is scientific, uh, like peer-reviewed literature to, to verify that, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, now, I also wanted to talk about this drug called hydroxychloroquine. Uh, it was a formerly generic drug. Uh, doctors would actually prescribe it before, uh, and uh, there have been uh, high-ranking people like Harvey Risch of the Yale School saying that we could have saved 100,000 lives if we used it, or, or French professor Didier Raoul, who's one of the world's leading scientists on communicable diseases, uh, suggesting that hydroxychloroquine uh, for treating early, in an early stage, um, I mean, these are very revered doctors, and uh, yet uh, Canada is not allowing this drug to be prescribed. Uh, it's, you know, so if we got this drug uh, applied at an early stage, um, you would have less of a hospital. You would have less people in the hospitals uh, as to, to deal with. So uh, what, what do you know about uh, this uh, drug uh, as, as a potential life save? I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that this is going to be uh, you know, a solution for everyone, but what would you say to the idea that uh, this potential lifesaver uh, has been denied as, an access, as an, a venue of protection for Canadians? So the, I actually know a fair amount about this. My, as, as you mentioned, my 
area of you know interest and research and academic activity is broadly speaking life-threatening infections of any sort because i i run an intensive care unit i'm going to be running the health sciences center icu uh, starting monday um, but i'm also an infectious disease trained doctor um, there has been some evidence in in vitro what we call like in laboratory dishes that hydroxychloroquine can kill some viruses that's why people thought it might work in humans and it's commonly used uh, for um, malaria. It used to be used uh, for malaria. It was one of the wonder drugs in terms of uh, almost eradicating malaria in, in the 1950s and 60s kind of thing. Subsequently, it became uh, uh, known as an anti-inflammatory drug used for rheumatoid arthritis. That's its major use in recent years. But it does have some interesting antiviral activity in, in a Petri dish. Now, if you look at the animal studies, because they looked at this with, with viruses, they actually found it didn't work by and large in animals. Don't know why, just, you know, what if you experimentally infected them, really didn't seem to work consistently. There's some studies that came out and said, well, maybe it works here. But I'd say I reviewed this for a paper I was writing, uh, you know, but probably about 85% of the paper said, no, we're not seeing an effect in animals, right? But they thought, you know what, this is a drug that's available. You know, it's commonly, it's easy to access, might have some activity. Let's give it a shot. And I don't think that's unreasonable when you got nothing else, because early on in, in, in coronavirus disease, we had nothing else. Some of the docs who used it just on spec is what we call it, uh, off label, uh, basically just using it because it was available. They wanted to see if maybe it would help because they had nothing else. Some of them thought they saw some responses, but that's not how we study a drug. I think it's a good start. And a lot of uh, studies where we've repurposed drugs, where they were shown to be effective, start that way. Somebody makes an observation. But next big step is to do a randomized controlled study where you give one group of people the drug, you give another group of people a placebo, which looks like the drug, and nobody really knows who got what, right? Because it's easy to fool yourself. If you're a doctor and you keep giving you know, people this drug, you go, oh, hey, half my guys lived. Well, you think that's great. I did something good. But really, you don't know until you test it. And these tests have been done. There have actually been at least two large studies, uh, one of which I know was published in the New England Journal that, that some of my uh, trainees participated in and, and helped organize. And it showed, those studies showed definitively it didn't work. Okay, and this, this, these studies were done in thousands of people. They, a randomized controlled study is the definitive way to figure out if this stuff works. And it doesn't. Uh, that's, I, I mean, I think it was a good idea to try, um, but... By and large, it seems to have more adverse effects. There's a lot of cardiac stuff that it does. Whenever you give a drug to somebody, there are going to be some side effects, at least in some people. You want the benefit to outweigh the side effects. In this case, it doesn't. Probably the side effects are, are greater, and there doesn't seem to be any significant benefit. Okay. Um, there are some drugs, by the way, that you know, kind of are in the pipe, pipeline that have some potential. Uh, steroids, for example, if you're admitted to uh, the, uh, you know, if you start needing oxygen, uh, corticosteroids, prednisone, has been shown to be helpful in, in these kind of studies. There's some data that a drug called remdesivir uh, may be useful. Uh, but other than that, there's nothing really that's proven. I would guess that, uh, that uh, antibodies from people who have had the disease, and this is a guess, uh, I think they would probably help, but that's being studied. I'm involved in one of those studies. But it's not something I would give somebody unless I had no other choice. Uh, or unless it was proven, basically. So, you know, people will, uh, you know, these days it'll be done as part of a study. 
And hopefully we'll have the answer in, you know, a few months. But right now, those are the two that I mentioned, steroids and remdesivir. Those are the only two drugs that have, that have been shown to have any benefit. Okay. Um, now on, on vaccines, um, encouraging people to get the vaccine once it's ready. Um, not everybody's comfortable with that. Uh, there, there have been vaccine producers in the States like Biopart, uh, which later became Emergent Biosolutions, had a record of adverse health reactions uh, from some of their work. Uh, the vaccine for H1N1. Uh, similarly, they saw uh, side effects uh, from some of the people, some of the people who received it. How can they overcome these reactions uh, for, for the sake of avoiding a flu with less than a 1% chance of dying from it? So again, you, you, you can test different vaccines and you obviously want to pick the one that has least side effects and greatest efficacy, uh, how much it works, basically, right? That's what you want. You want minimum side effects and, and highest likelihood to work. Um, but beyond that, there's not much you can do because when you're using a vaccine, what you're basically doing is you are giving yourself or, or you know, somebody is giving you uh, some of the uh, proteins or DNA or some part of the, of the virus or whatever you're trying to protect against, right? And your body is geared to detect that and respond to that. Everybody's a little bit different. Like I may have a very minor response. I might have nothing, or you might have a little bit of fever. And there might be the odd person that has a you know major bad effect. The question comes again: is the cost-benefit analysis right? So if you've got a disease that has like zero chance of uh, causing serious problems, eh, you probably don't want to take the vaccine if there's a reasonable risk you're going to have a big side effect, right? If it's a minor side effect, on the other hand, that you've got a reasonable chance of getting against a high risk of dying if you get the disease, then you say, yeah, I'll probably take it. Uh, right now, we don't know what the uh, vaccine is. I can say the coronavirus vaccine. I can say safely that for, uh, for influenza, the benefits, by and large, uh, substantially weigh the, the, the downside risk. Um, in young people, even those who don't get severe uh, disease, but, you know, generally, I mean, obviously with H1N1, we had some people dying young deaths, but the seasonal uh, vaccine generally doesn't um, cause a lot of death in young people. So why should they take it? Well, it's because you care about your, your parents and your grandparents, because if you don't take it, if we don't get a decent number of people who take it, then we're not going to be able to control the virus on a herd level, right? So, for example, elderly people don't really respond that well to influenza vaccine. You can give it to them. Maybe it gives them some protection, but a lot of them don't develop much of an antibody response and don't get full protection. But if all the people around them who they have contact with, the kids, their grandkids, the healthcare workers are protected and don't get it, then they're safe too. And it's the same thing with, with coronavirus. You, you're going to have to balance uh, the risk and benefit. And, and I'll, I'll be looking at that data myself. If, if I find that the... Uh, that the risk is low enough. I know what that is. The risk of the vaccine is low enough. I know what the risk of the disease is in somebody my age. I'm 60 years old. I have lots of comorbidities. If they've got a reasonable vac vaccine, I take it in a second. My kids, they'll probably choose to take the vaccine too, not because they necessarily have a high risk themselves, but they'll take it because they love me and they love their grandparents and they want to protect their their friends and neighbors, right? So you don't take it just to protect yourself. You take it to protect the people that you love. Okay. Uh, we've got our final uh, question for you. Um, the, the lockdowns that you're uh, pushing the government for, 
uh, th there is a, a side effect in that it does actually have uh, negative aspects. I mean, children aren't going to school, no more public events, uh, multitudes of small and, and moderate business go under, which puts people out of work, extreme poverty, domestic violence is up, suicides are up. So, I mean, it, it is a bargain, okay? So how, how do you justify this action to... to, to same thing. You measure you measure the downside against the you know the down, downside of a shutdown versus the downside of not having a shutdown, right? And you figure out which is going to hurt you more. Now I have a pretty good idea of how much a lockdown is going to hurt. I have friends and family who are in business. Um, you know, I, I mean, I and I'm not, you know, putting that aside by any. This is going to hurt if we do a full lockdown. What I'd say, though, is I don't think people appreciate the downside risk of just going on as we are. If, if you look at what happened in uh, places like Italy, what's happening in India, uh, places where the, the, the uh, virus has been unchecked, especially where there's a significant older population like countries like Canada, the United States, it's devastating. I mean, there are a lot of deaths. Uh, right now, I think I read that right at this moment, uh, the number of deaths, like in the United States, I think they're, what, at 225,000 deaths? That's more than, you know, that's like, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, the World Trade Center, right? 2,000 deaths. That's like that 110 times over, right? So it's a really significant number. It is, I believe, the number two or number three cause of death in the United States right now, where we've got numbers. I'm sure it's the same here. So... What I'd say is you gotta you gotta choose which one that you're willing to live or or die with, you know, frankly. And from my point of view, the potential ramifications of unchecked spread of coronavirus is so great that it's worth the shutdown. Um, the initial models were probably correct. Again, just to give you an idea, in the United States, the initial models suggested that they might have five million deaths if they did absolutely nothing. That would translate into about half a million in Canada, given the difference in population, right? So that's that's a number that would affect every single person. Now, I'm not saying given what we've done, you know, like a, we've got kind of a partial shutdown now. I'm not saying that that's not going to have any effect. But what I am going to say is that the most effective approach right now would be to shut it down completely, schools, churches, businesses, just what we did in the spring, drive the numbers down to as low as we can, maybe five a week. And we can do that, right? And then be aggressive in our, our uh, de-escalation. That is to say, what we did this year, which was a mistake, was we basically said, oh, we've got it under control. Let's open everything, right? Not what we should have done. We actually deal with this in medicine in other circumstances, uh, like when we take you off antibiotics after you've had a severe illness. We don't stop all the antibiotics at once. Right. We stop one and we see how you do for a little while. Then we stop another and see how you do for a little while because you're often on multiple antibiotics. Same thing that we should have done here is we should have stopped some of the restrictions. Wait to see if we're seeing an increase and, and do it stepwise because we didn't. We're seeing a huge surge now. What we need to do is replicate what we did in the spring, go at it hard and then come up slowly. And if we do that, we can end up like uh, uh, New Zealand or Australia. They're basically living normal lives with normal economic activity. 
we can't have normal economic activity unless we get the virus under control. They're not mutually exclusive by any means. In fact, they, they go together. If you really want to have, the vi- have economic activity, then get the virus under control and you can do that. If you have to lock it down again, you know, if numbers start to go up, rather than doing four weeks or six weeks, which is probably what would be necessary now, you can do a week, two weeks, basically, and get the numbers from, you know, from 50 down to 10 uh, kind of thing. It's a lot harder to get it down from 350 or 500. Today's, today's was 350, right, in Manitoba. Two weeks from now, I guarantee you it'll be over 1,000 cases a day. And even at 350, over the next two weeks, we'll overload our ICU capacity. You're going you're gonna to see it. It's going to happen because anything that we do now in terms of restrictions is only going to have an impact uh, two or three weeks down the road. If we lock it down completely, what we'll probably see is it'll continue to go up for two, three weeks, then it'll plateau, and then it'll start to come down. If we do a partial thing, my best guess is it'll it, it'll be the same thing for the next two or three weeks. After that, though, it will just go up more slowly. Right now, with the restrictions that the Manitoba government has put in place, in my mind, we get about 20% of the benefit of a full a lockdown, uh, but we get 80% of the pain. Right, I think we should go all the way, be definitive. The other reason to to be aggressive here is because say things aren't working out in four weeks. We've done a partial lockdown. In four weeks, the numbers are still going up slowly. Any change we make there, still not going to have an effect for another three weeks, right? And it's going to go up in in that interim as well. So we get up to something like 2,000 cases a day. I mean... It's, it's an absolute catastrophe. We'll have hundreds, uh, if not more, deaths in that kind of circumstance. We, we've done calculations. Uh, we have a really nice uh, tracking system of, you know, patients in and out of the ICU and, you know, what it requires. Um, we calculate that if we have a sustained period where we have 250 or so or more patients a day coming into the hospital, or sorry, uh, being diagnosed daily, 250, and we're already at 350. We have more than 250 for a sustained period of time, one to two weeks, we're going to blow by our our ICU capacity. And as I said, every patient beyond that who needs ICU is going to be triaged because we won't have enough That was Dr. and Professor Anand Kumar speaking to the provincial government on the need for a lockdown. That's the end of our show for this week. Next week, we'll take a look at the 75th anniversary of the Second World War from a position inconvenient towards that war's official story. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.